Welcome to Lakeville. I'm producer Eric Sega. Support for Lakeville comes from two places. Sponsors we genuinely love, and people just like you. If you'd like to help us keep the lights on in Lakeville, you can find our Patreon at patreon.com slash Podcast. Again, that's patreon.com slash Podcast. The second wave of support comes from our sponsors, places and products we sincerely, truly love. The first is Elsa's. In the 90s, a Scandinavian woman took a cab from Toronto to Montreal and opened a bar in the Plateau Montréal. The rest is history. Perhaps the best place in Montreal, if not the world, to have a lively conversation, a good drink, and some great food, Elsa's wants you to enjoy each other. Also sponsoring the podcast is Good Mix. Good Mix includes a wide range of prebiotic fiber, which promotes microbial diversity in the gut flora. You can get 15% off your next purchase of Good Mix at Amazon and at goodmixfoods.com by using the code LIKEFILL when you check out online. You can find links to our sponsors at our website, www.likevillepodcast.com. Without further ado, here's our host, John Faithful Hamer, introducing today's episode. Welcome to the Likeville Podcast. This is John Faithful Hamer. Today I'm going to be talking with a very old friend of mine, Alex Finetti, um, about David Graeber's book, Bullshit Jobs. Uh, this is uh, a, an amazing book, which has gained kind of a, a new life. It's been a bestseller on Amazon and other things since the pandemic, uh, for reasons that we'll probably end up discussing. But uh, So welcome, Alex. Well, hello, John. Uh, so how would, you, uh, how would you define what you have been doing with your adult life? <laughs> like, what have you done for, for a living for your... Well, I've, um, I've had a, a series of sales-related jobs, account manager, sales rep. Uh, but <clears throat> I've basically, I'm the kind of person that gets involved in all kinds of projects in a company. So I've been involved in all kinds of things other than sales, although I really I enjoy sales. I I also enjoy doing different stuff. I like marketing. I've been involved in marketing campaigns. I you know, last year I was part of a design development for a new software that we launched globally. Um so in a nutshell, I've been doing sales, but I've done all kinds of stuff. Yeah. Well, I I know that's why I always I usually try and get the guests to define themselves because you know trying to the whole idea as david graber points out on numerous occasions in bullshit jobs the whole idea of defining yourself based on your work or your profession is sort of deeply fucked right from the start i mean that's like messed up right from the start so i the one way i try and i guess you know attenuate that is to let people define themselves yeah, how they but want yeah it, it's kind of hard to do that too because you know, if I had to define myself, I'd probably say I'm a gardener. <laughs> you know, yeah. I, I, I actually enjoy... No, I, I know exactly what you're talking I about. I enjoy yeah. gardening very much. I'm and, a salamander hunter. You know, yeah, that's it. And, <laughs> much you know, more than I am a professor. <laughs> yeah. Mo- most of my time, is, uh, free time that I have is, you know, looking at gardening stuff and yeah. researching it and reading books on gardening. And so, uh, and, and in my job, you know, you say sales, but I've... Literally, I've written, you know, newsletters. I've designed uh, trade show exhibits. I've uh, 
like I said, I was part of last year design development on the company I'm currently with on their um, software, but I've done that for numerous companies I've worked with. I basically, I don't want to say this uh, too loud, but I find having a job like sales where you're always doing the same thing sometimes a bit dull. Uh, so whenever I have the opportunity in my own organization to do something different, I jump on the opportunity. Most people don't. You know, I've had a, I've worked with a lot of people that, you know, they're happy doing their stuff. Um, but I will, you know, I'll, two years ago we redid the, uh, we changed, <clears throat> we moved um, from one location to another, the, uh, the warehouse and we had you know we had an issue kind of setting the whole warehouse up and we were trying to continue working and still set up like all of the racking and stuff and I ended up saying look you know I'll do it right so I ended up spending two weeks working in the warehouse with the guys organizing agency temp workers to you know do all this and to be quite honest if I couldn't do this in my jobs I'd you know probably like in the, like Graeber says in the book uh, of middle managers, I'd probably want to slip my wrists. You know? Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> no, I do. I do the same thing uh, with uh, with my courses at my job. Like I, I redesign my courses pretty much every year. Um, sometimes twice a year, so I'll change them from one semester to the next. And I'm so I'll I'll redesign them. I'll have I'll assign new books, new articles, new material, and rework it. And I've had some colleagues who say, well, why are you doing that all the time? Why don't you just like, once you have your course, like just perfect it. And then you've got all your quizzes done and all your assignments done, and all your lectures written out. And then you can just like kind of coast. Yeah. And yeah, my response is the same thing. It's like, I, I need to keep the job interesting for me. Yeah. And once there'd been a couple of times where of necessity, especially when like Tristan and Andy were young when kids were young and it was really busy with like a lot of stuff that of necessity, I just kind of went on a little bit of an autopilot where I would figure out my job. Like, and I, I figured it all out. I know what to do. And then I just repeat, you know, like that. And I find that, um, it, it just gets really demoralizing. It yeah. gets demoralizing. Cause I don't feel like, um, I don't feel like I'm actually learning anything new and I, I don't feel excited about the material anymore. And I start to feel like a, like a trained monkey or something. Like I'm just like repeating the same lines as yeah. if I'm like a, like a telemarketer, you know, saying the same thing yeah, yeah. to everybody. And I hear you. Yeah. And so I end up, so I, I feel like with a lot of, with a lot of jobs, Part of the excitement is the um, kind of figuring new things out, right? Yeah. And like, but I mean, to, see, to get back to David Graeber and what he says about just for those of you who haven't um, read the book, or you could start off by if you just do a Google search on, um, I think it's called "On the Phenomenon of Bullshit Jobs." It was an essay that was um, that came out, I think it was 2014 it came out originally, and the essay went completely viral. Um, it was like to the point where the online magazine that it was published in, 
uh, their website crashed like numerous times uh, again and again and again. It was reprinted by a number of of other places, and then it crashed their sites. Uh, it was just, I think it was like one of the most read essays, not very long, the original essay. And there he he says that, um, and this book that we're that we're talking about today is the book that he wrote based on on the essay. He responded to a lot of criticisms of the book, and he got um, just this flood of thousands and thousands of people sent him private messages, phone calls, texts, tweets. He he set up an entire email address just for people sending him things where they said, Oh my God, like what you're saying is so completely true. And you've just described my existence completely. But um, so essentially he says that uh, more and more of the jobs in our society are completely useless jobs. Uh, They, they don't, they don't really serve any necessary function at all. And, and this is an important connection to it, um, the people doing them totally know that it's a bullshit job. And so they know that the job is completely useless. And he says that this um, is actually, uh, does a lot of kind of spiritual violence, that it, it brings on a lot of anxiety and depression and people feel terrible about themselves. And it sets up this really toxic situation where people who are unemployed resent people who are employed. People who are employed uh, resent people who are unemployed. Then people who are employed in bullshit jobs uh, resent people who have, like, fun jobs, cool jobs, right? People in just the, cool, the fun world jobs. of resentment. Yeah, it's just, it sets up a situation where all sorts of people are resenting each other. So now like the the people doing uh, meaningful work are resented by the people who have to do like bullshit work. And they're like, oh, isn't it so nice for you that you get to like do an interesting job? Well, we don't all get to do that, you know, grow up. Like yeah. sometimes you just have to like wake up and smell the PowerPoint, you know, like whatever. Like you have to like grow yeah, up. Yeah. And so it creates this situation where – Everybody is resenting everybody else, and nobody's recognizing that it's the system itself that is making all of us miserable. Yeah, it's, so, it's, it's a it's an interesting. Uh, so that the concept um, is actually very alluring. Like reading the book, you kind of get. Um, I wish I, I was I would have been able to read it twice, you know, but. Um, you kind of get this uh, feeling that uh, he's really touched on something, right, which is very real. I tried in a lot of instances to, you know, try and look at my experience, the jobs that I've had, you know, uh, useless managers, you know, over, you know, everyone's had useless managers, uh, and useless jobs in the workplace. I was able to identify a few maybe a few jobs that were close to that, but, you know, I'm not in the, in the banking industry. I think he talks a lot about the, you know, financial industry, banking mm-hmm. industry, have a lot of this. Um, what I, what I did, where I did see the parallels though, in, 
you know, I'm saying the real world, my world, because my world's not the real world. I just have a section, right, which belongs to me. Um, there's a lot of bullshit people. So you'll have managers in good companies, right, that want to be uh, profitable and want everyone to be um, effective and efficient. And you will have managers that are bullshit, that will make you do bullshit stuff and that are just, you know, they're, they're just bad, right? Uh, unfortunately, there's like so many bad managers out there. And, and then you have tasks, which are absolute bullshit, like the whole box ticking idea, you know. So this I have actually been, uh, especially being in sales, you know, managers like to quantify your time. And you always have to like, where did you go? Who did you see? What did you talk about? How many this? How many that? You know, blah, blah, blah. There's tons of quantifying to do. I'm not going to get into boring details, but anyone that's ever done a sales job understands. Um, and there's a ton of bullshit tasks. Now, does that mean that the jobs that you have are then bullshit jobs? I don't know. I don't, you know, it, I guess it takes a little bit, you know, you got to dig deep and kind of see. Um, but uh, so what he is saying, I think would resonate with almost everybody if they were to look at their, you know, whatever sector they're in. Yeah, these, this is a totally, you know, useless uh, job and uh, or this is a totally useless task because we unfortunately all have to do it, you know. Um, he, at one point he talks about, you know, people that do nothing all day, right? Uh, where they're just like s sitting around for like, you know, eight hours a day, you know, they have one hour of work and then, they, you know, the, the other seven hours they're online, I don't know, on Facebook writing poems, you know, becoming becoming a businessman, I don't know, coming up with the next great idea. But um, so as a, I, I, I'm looking at this and he's like categorizing all this as bullshit and I'm like, well, you know, from the business owner standpoint, there's a couple of reasons why this could be useful, right? So the first of all is if you have somebody that's there that has to deal with emergencies, sometimes an emergency in a company is very expensive, right? And to, have, to pay somebody a couple of bucks an hour, you know, and I say a couple of bucks, whether you're being paid, you know, even 25, 30 bucks an hour, whatever, to uh, just sit around for like emergencies. When the emergencies happen, they could literally be tens of thousands of dollars or hundreds of thousands of dollars or, you know, sometimes costs you can't really put your finger on it. So you're just like, okay, well, you feel like you have a bullshit job because you're not doing much. But really, at the end of the day, when you're doing something, you're mitigating a much bigger cost, right, for the company. Yeah. yeah Taleb gives a great example of this in, um, I think it's in Skin in the Game, where he says if you, according to a lot of economists, sort of attempts to maximize profits and things like that, they will say, well, we want to get rid of as, as many permanent positions as possible and we want to have things done by uh, consultants and by outsourcing and things like that. And he he gives an example, a number of examples of why that actually is not, doesn't work in practice. And he, the example I remember that was most compelling was he says, you know, let's say you are, um, you run an, international business that has like offices in a number of different cities and you sometimes to put out fires or to deal with you sometimes need to get to a place like really quickly and so um 
you can't always get a flight in time. So you have like a private jet, you have a private plane, right? Now you can, uh, you can hire a pilot and give him a permanent job with benefits and with vacation time and the whole bit and say, you have to be on call for whenever I need yeah. you. Yeah. Now I might not need you for month. a month, right? Yeah. So he's just collecting checks for free and he's doing Yay. nothing. Great job. Uh, but if I need you, if I need you, you have to be there at like three o'clock in the morning and fly me somewhere like right away. So <clears throat> he said, a lot of people, what they do is they'll look at this when they're trying to maximize there and to in cost cutting measures, they'll say, "Well, this is ridiculous. We're paying this guy, uh, you know, like one hundred and fifty thousand dollars a year, um, and last year you only actually had like ten flights. So we're paying this guy like you know fifteen thousand. That's ridiculous. We could just hire a pilot um, when we need them." There's lots of pilots, uh, people out there that fly. We could, we don't even need to own the plane. We can rent yeah. the plane and rent the pilot when we need them. And he said the problem with that is, as as we've seen again and again, is that um, very often when you're facing a crisis and a problem, and you need a pilot and a plane, lots of other people do too. Yeah, because it's a general. It's funny. I was and just, so now you can't yeah. get. So I was going to uh, mention you can't get a pilot or a plane because they're all taken. And now, uh, and so, so or, industries, or they can charge like 10 times the normal rate because you're asking them to come at two o'clock in the morning to fly you to San Francisco. Yeah. So it actually, you're, it's like insurance, right? You're paying, um, when you get an employee, you're paying for them uh, to be there when you need them. Now he goes, the problem is, is if you don't see that clearly, you'll have managers who will say, well, all the time that he's not flying you around, um, let's have him, you know, doing the dishes or doing the gardening. Let's make him, keep him busy. Yeah, so you know? so this actually goes down two um, very interesting paths, actually a number of interesting paths, but I'm just going to put the final cherry on what you were talking about, the airplane pilot, because I've actually lived this in my... Uh, in two of the industries that I've worked in, it, it works. It happens in a lot of industries, but <clears throat> so two of the industries I, I worked in, one of which was actually uh, so uh, where it was more prevalent, and it was the exhibit industry. Um, so exhibit industries, they're basically on contracts. So they're people, you know, you get a contract, you have to redo a you know whole museum exhibition or a zoo, you know, displays and. You end up getting, you know, $6 million contracts to redo all the artifacts and, you know, do the signage and, you know, come up with storylines for whatever exhibit they're putting in that museum. And uh, you have some very specialized labor, you know, guys who can uh, carve, um, you know, life-size lions, right? Or people that um, have very specialized uh, um Carpentry skills, right, to build exhibits and like et cetera, et cetera, right? Because the exhibit world is actually super complex and very specialized. So I had customers um, who would literally keep staff of this specialized labor on for months without work, right? Um, they'd have them, you know, almost like sweep the floor, like because if if they didn't get it, because it's a it's a bid uh, industry. Let's say, you know, 
you don't have the business, so now you can't keep these, you know, 15 guys working. You say, well, sorry, guys, we don't, you know, when we get a new contract, we're just going to hire you up again. So you let them go. The exhibit house down the street, they get the contract that you lost or just another contract. And they're like, well, we need guys to do, you know, yada, yada, yada. And then they hire them, right? Because now they're in the free market. And then as a business, uh, when you get business next month or in two months, when you actually do get the other big project, um, you have no workers, right? And and there were the people that you do have uh, that you can kind of scrounge up. They just suck. They're just no good. They can't do the they can't do the work, right? So then you run into all kinds of other problems, right? So built into the system in a lot of industries. Not I'm not you know again not banking because I you know I don't think this kind of stuff is relevant to banking because um, I know he craps on banking and I do too. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But but I mean, um, uh, there's a lot of industries where you. As a business owner, to keep your potential uh, um, edge and to be able to deliver the product that you want to deliver, you need to pay people to do nothing. So that kind of needs to be built into the whole kind of equation, right? So when you are making the sales and building the exhibits and doing all these things, um, yeah, maybe you're making you're making a little bit more money. You know, maybe you're, you're it's, it looks like you're maybe you're gouging or maybe it, but but because there could be lean times and there, unfortunately because it's very skilled labor, there are lean times where you don't want to get rid of that labor. So, you know, uh, this exists. It doesn't exist everywhere, but even see the industry I'm in now uh, with it's stone. The same thing. There's guys. I've talked to guys. They're like, oh, we're really, you know, we're not that busy, but we have a couple of guys in the back that are really good at, you know, uh, polishing, and I don't want to get rid of them. You know, of course, at some point, if they're not doing anything profitable for, like, weeks, months, you know, you kind of have to let them go. But um, I guess as long as you can hold on to people. Yeah. Well, I I remember my uncle telling me this with his uh, business, that one of the reasons why they were able to um, prevail over their competition again and again was because they were just not playing by the usual MBA um, mentality, like rules. They were playing by a different set of rules. So he goes that usually, especially think people that are traded on the stock market, they everything's about quarterly profits, and they want to kind of maximize profits. They want to like keep their fixed costs as low as possible. And so what that often would mean is that during a slow time, they would say, let's lay off a third of our employees. So they would lay off a third of their employees. Um, Then they would uh, really go like working on sales, trying to get like new contracts. So now the company gets a new contract. It's a big contract. It's worth a lot of money. Yeah. And so now they need to get back that third of the workforce that they laid off. But the thing is, is you can't do that so easily because now you've got to go through the huge expense and time of interviewing lots of people and then trying people and then getting them. And then once you get them, some of them don't work out and then you have to train them and they have to learn. So most of them are not actually up to speed uh, and, and producing the way that third that you laid off were. Yeah. Like in terms of understanding what we do, what our product is, how to do everything. Uh, 
to get them up to speed, to hire them and then get them up to speed, that's going to be minimum six months, maybe more like a year to get back to the strength that you were before you laid off that third. Now, what that means is that you are, uh, you're probably going to be late on delivering the product to the customer. Uh, you're not going to deliver it when you said it was going to. It's way more likely to have problems because you have new people working on stuff. Uh, meanwhile, we, um, during the slow times, we don't lay off anybody ever. We just, if we have we've had a couple of really dry spells uh, where we don't have like a lot of work at that time. We just tell people, uh, okay, if you have any vacation time, take it now. Um, if you're coming in, uh, if you have projects around your house, you want to repaint something, you want to redo your basement, now's the time to do it. Yeah. Uh, do you have, do you want to do your Christmas shopping early? I know it's October, but stuff's cheap. Like, yeah, yeah. go, you want to do like, uh, you want to leave early on Friday? That's fine. Do you want to come but in that's late a management on Monday? Thing. You basically, you tell people like, um, you know, do all those projects you want to do. Take care of different things because when things get going, yeah, I'm going to need you to really give it. So, but, so and so then when they get a contract, yeah, he said we ha- we're at full strength. Yeah, like we can like hit the ground running, and we come in uh, on time. Everything's amazing. Everything's great. And meanwhile, these other companies that on paper, look they good. look way more profitable yeah. than us, but we actually get the job done. We yeah. actually, and, uh, and so you, you know, this is a whole kind of cost benefit. So, so I think um, to that point, one of the important, so I think one of the, Graber in the book, he talks about managers and the whole managerial class, I think he has a lot of disdain for them. <laughs> I think he like you know managers in general, uh, and he talks about you know he he I think he makes a direct correlation between uh, you know modern day managers and the feudal lords. <laughs> yeah, they have lots of people. Like the you more know? people they can have under them, yeah, yeah, and, and the you know, better. Right. So so the problem is this: your uncle's company is managed with. Um, good people and there's a lot of companies that are managed by not good people and so in my life I have probably seen I've worked for a lot of large companies and medium-sized companies and um, there's a lot of just really bad managers who don't know what to do and unfortunately they get into this job for whatever reason, because somebody put them there, because maybe a CV looked good, they said all the right things in an interview, you know, um, maybe because they were, in my case, you know, in sales, because they were good in sales, they said, well, you know, you're really good in sales, the next step is, you know, you just go be a manager, right? So now all of a sudden, you become a manager, and, you know, that's often a nightmare, like it ends up being a fucking total disaster, honestly, like you'll get some salespeople that are... Salespeople, they're not managers, right? Yeah. A good manager is, it's like um, they're a conductor, right? They're there to uh, coach their team. They're there to inspire their team. They're there, you know, as a conductor. Okay, you do this, you know, you go here. Oh, you're good at that. Go over there, you know, you know, you just play the symphony and your team, and then you create, 
you create a team, right? And then you you kind of look at, you know, you kind of have to understand what the company needs to do, right? What the goal of the company is. And then sort of focus your team and all of their individual strengths of the people in your team to do what they're good at and just, you know, make the symphony play a fantastic song. Now, most managers are not conductors, okay? Nor are they good coaches. They're just, um, like Graeber says, bullshit managerial, you know, class that want to have people under them. That once they get there, they go through the whole box ticking exercise. You know, they have their manager job. They're like happy. Whoa, this is great. You know, I guess, you know, like like he talks about, I think at some point uh, that school is there to groom, you know, groom the Borg, (laughs) you know, (laughs) groom us, you know, so that we can accept all of these jobs. And, uh, and fortunately I, it's this, I think this is kind of true. I don't think there's, you know, uh, not in all cases, but you have people that aspire to be managers. Um, and then when they get there, they just don't have the tools for it. And then they end up staying there. Right. And companies, unfortunately, and this is another thing that I've seen, companies who either like people or where people have been good to them, you know, they've been productive, they've done, they'll, they'll, they'll promote them, right? Or they'll give them a, another shot. Okay, well, you want to, you know, you want to move up in your career because that's what people want to do, right? People want to move up in their career. And often moving up, I guess you need to, because we all have this idea of moving up, which maybe kind of ties into a bit Graeber's book, is that, you know, if I have a job X, you know, what is the way up? Well, I guess it's managing people that do X job, right? So if you work in an architectural firm or you work in a, in a sales organization or you work in the production, you know, on the shop somewhere, uh, you know, moving up means now you manage the shop or mm-hmm. the other architects or the salespeople, right? And that's kind of ingrained in our psyche. And um, so then, you know, they push these people up, they kind of suck, and uh, they do a really bad job. But if they've done a good job at hiring you or you were good at some point, they're like, ah, okay, well, we'll just, you know, maybe we'll give them another promotion or we'll give them another job. Another. So they end up moving people around. I've seen this so often. Just people go from like one job to the next within the same organization and and just be inept at them. You know, what's the expression? You kind of get promoted to your oh, level yeah, of yeah. incompetence. Oh, you know? yeah, you get, you get keep, yeah. Prom- I, I guess, but there are ways in which this is produced structurally by, like if you want to... It's part of the uh, system. If you want to get, like, I, going back to my, my uncle's example, his company, I remember him explained to me that, like, if you want to be traded on, like, let's say, you know, on Wall Street or on NASDAQ or one of the various, if you want to be, like, a publicly traded company, yeah. you have to conform to a particular model yeah. of, like, what your corporation, you're gonna, you have to have certain positions, you have to have certain things. Now, yeah. some of this stuff makes sense. But some of it is is purely formal. Yeah, you need vision right? statements, and then like governments, governments, HR departments do, that you yeah, know. Yeah, some um, of it is like just some of it makes sense. Like for instance, like okay, you should have a certain amount of reserve uh, money so that you know if there's a run on the bank, you actually have res- some. Of, you should have insurance. You should, some of it like makes yeah, sense. Yeah, yeah, but some of it is is. Um, 
is does not make sense and creates bullshit jobs. And actually, in the, the example I gave before about how um, your board could say, well, are you, you know, the typical kind of shareholder capitalism model, are you providing value to shareholders by having such a top heavy uh, where you have so many employees, like you're, this is a big expense. We could easily increase our profitability by laying off a third of these people. So on paper, that looks like a good thing from shareholders' perspective. But in terms of the long term yeah. uh, success of the firm, that's a terrible thing, right? But government does this as well. And you gave yeah. me this one yeah, example yeah. from the, the Folia. Folia yeah. So, yeah, you can say that exactly. Yeah, it's just yeah. it's so, absolutely so maddening. As far as uh, public companies are concerned, all bets are off because I've had so many run-ins with public companies where they just do things that make no sense whatsoever. Um, but, um, but even smaller organizations. So yes, yeah, so I worked at this place for a, a number of years, nine years, where... Um, we were a young, we were a small organization. Uh, it probably started off being, when I got there, maybe uh, 15, 12, 15 employees. And then by the time I left, we were, you know, 85, maybe 90, something like that. And uh, so they were in a city that was <clears throat> classified as a um, disaster area. They They had... So in the 90s, so I'm just going to back up here a little bit. So in the 90s, they had this place called the Klein and Tinker and the Woolen Mill. And uh, the Klein and Tinker employed like 2,500 people. The Woolen Mill employed, you know, 500 people. And in, believe it or not, um, the Canadian government, and they, they were textile companies. So one was like a woolen mill. They would make like filler for, you know, clothing. I think they worked with North Face and stuff like that, uh, coats and, you know. And the other one, the Klein and Tinker, was a weaver. They had like these most state-of-the-art uh, looms, okay? They had the most high-tech looms, I think, in all of North America. We're in Huntington, right here, southern Quebec, okay? And uh, they had the contracts with, I think it was the Canadian Army, to all, make all of their textile. And they also had the contracts with the Postal Service uh, for all the postmen. And then over the years, those contracts were actually lost to uh, firms in China. And so we lost the textile uh, business here to China. And there's a little side note here, anecdotal. Um, the, the machines in those plants which we ended up moving into. So the, the company I worked with actually ended up purchasing dirt cheap the uh, the buildings and the property where these plants were because there was nothing. That, that The entire town was basically um, kept alive because of the decline in the woolen mill. And um, so they, they ended up um, selling these state-of-the-art looms to companies in China believe it or not, who bought them. <laughs> so they came in a huge, like, look, it was a, I don't know, 200,000 square foot plant just filled with looms, you know, making textile. Uh, they came in, took, you know, because they were all brand, great brand new machines, they, you know, uh, disassembled them, put them in containers and shipped them all to China. And there we have it. 
that's the end of you know textile industry in Quebec. Really sad story, but you know I guess part of globalization. Um, now that said, this area had over the years they were they were closing down different plants within uh, in Huntington because the Klein had like four or five facilities. Well, I don't think they had four, they had four three four facilities. So when they closed the last one, a lot of people were unemployed, and now they had to figure out what the hell to do. You know, what the fuck? We have like hundreds, thousands of people now in this town that don't really have any other jobs. Montreal's an hour away, you know. So we were the second largest employer at the time. We probably had about, I don't know, 25 employees or something or 30 employees. You know, we were growing. And so the government, there was, um, to make a long story short, the government basically um, offered help to our company um, to, I guess, in all kinds of different ways, in all kinds of like programs, so that we would hire more people locally and you know export more because we were exporting to the U.S. a lot. One of the things, though, that was mandatory um, was to have an organogram that was a basically a replica of what the government employees um, deemed an appropriate organogram, right? Where you have uh, a president, you know, uh, you have a general manager, you have, you know, director of operations, you have a director of HR, you have a, you know, or VP, uh, VP of sales and marketing. So, so before this, um, we were doing really well, right? We were, as a, as a company, um, we had, you know, the owner was like the boss kind of doing marketing and they had like another owner doing operations. And uh, it was basically just, you know, you know, his kind of like the sense, you know, business sense, right? We would make decisions and, you know, we would say, hey, you know, I think this would be a really good idea to do this. And they'd be, yeah, you want to do that? Yeah, great, go. Fantastic. And this is where I got involved in all kinds of really cool projects because, you know, um, we didn't have the staff or we didn't have the organization to do those things, right? And we were doing it really well. We were actually quite good. You know, of course, when we needed people, we would hire people. Anyways, to get to the point, the point is when the government came in, they said, you want all this money? You want like, you know, um, well, you need all these people. So we started hiring. We ended up hiring, you know, a general manager, we had a, a, an official VP sales that wasn't a founder, um, you know, uh, someone in the production. And, uh, and then things just got like, it kind of it broke the synergy that we had, to be quite honest, you know. Uh, uh, another really, another phenomenon that happened is that, so on the marketing side, you know, marketing people that come out that have their MBAs that just, you know, are putting their, making their mark in the world. They want to like, I guess, show on a CV that they've done something. And we went through three marketing individuals in a number of years, mostly because they didn't, they didn't like being so far because we were like an hour outside of Montreal. We couldn't find anybody out where we were. They were all people that came from Montreal and they just found that was bullshit driving all that time. And also, um, just 
they they weren't delivering their merchandise, right? So when one with the first time one of them left, um, we had to very quickly get a, a second VP guy in because funding was attached to having all of those roles um, fulfilled, right? Same thing for general manager. We ended up having one that was like one guy burnt out and then the other one came in and he was like just really like it was so bad. It wasn't even funny. We caught him sleeping on the bench in the park <laughs> when no, no, it was, he was just he was so bad. We we made complaints about this guy. Um, and the only reason why these these people were hired is because they wanted to get the money from the government so that they could you know, do whatever it is they want to do with it, uh, export more, produce more, you know, be more efficient, or what have you. And uh, so they ended up creating this incredible inefficiency, which basically persisted. It stayed because once, you know, once the organization, once you, quote, see yourself as a serious organization and you have like a serious organogram, you know, with like real VPs of like all these departments, you can't start um, taking those away. You know, because that's not credible, right? And uh, and also, once you're kind of in the machine, in the governmental machine, and you there's always some kind of program, and if you always want to be eligible for any kind of government funding or government programs, the 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 structure needs to be there. So, yeah. But but behind all of that, and this is one of the most interesting points that I think David Graeber makes is that. Behind all of this is this assumption that we have to have like something like full employment. So those 2,500 people lost their jobs in yeah. Huntington. Um, if, we had, if we had something like a UBI, right, like a universal basic income, or if we had like a, some sort of supplement which just uh, was given to everybody um, as a matter of course, just because they're a citizen of Canada and you get, you know, as Andrew Yang called it, you know, the freedom dividend, yeah, just yeah. by virtue of you being an American citizen. Well, then those 2,500 people who've lost their jobs, it's their problem. It's yeah. their problem to uh, find another job, maybe go back to school, get some new skills or or don't. Or just go home and garden and take care of their kids or take care of their aging, you know, relatives or like whatever, you know, get yeah. in shape, like study Spinoza, do whatever yeah, they yeah. want to do. Like it's their, but it's their problem. And then at that point, uh, but when you have in the background, this idea that we need to have full employment all the time then that creates all of these spin-off things where now the government wants to like we've got to somehow give these people jobs and if that means that we end up actually spending $150,000 a year to give somebody a $50,000 a year job then that's worth it because we'll call that a win because we want to have the yeah. unemployment rate it has to be as low as possible and I won't get reelected if it's too high. And we, I would rather have them um, working a job that basically was created by taxpayer money and is not necessary 
than to have them just straight up getting the check themselves. Well, Graber, Graber says it, I think, at one point in the book. Um, I think he says something like, Obama was caught with the smoking gun. Oh, I'm actually, I'm going to read you that because so it's he, so it's he, so perfect. Yeah, it's, he talks. Yeah, I'll, I'll read it. It's, he, he says, um, uh, a Soviet official issuing a planning document or an American politician calling for job creation might not be entirely aware of the likely effects of their action. Still, once a situation is created, even as an unintended side effect, politicians can be expected to size up the larger political implications of that situation when they make up their minds what, if anything, to do about unemployment. Uh, Then he says, uh, does this mean that members of the political class might actually collude in the maintenance of useless employment? If that seems a daring claim, even conspiracy talk, consider the following quote from an interview with then United States President Barack Obama about some of the reasons why he bucked the preferences of the electorate, and insisted on maintaining a private, for-profit health insurance system in America. This is the quote from Obama. He says, I don't think in ideological terms. I never have, Obama said, continuing on the health care theme. Everybody who supports single-payer health care says, look at all this money we would be saving from insurance and paperwork. But that represents one million, two million, three million jobs filled by people who are working at Blue Cross Blue Shield or Kaiser or other places. What are we doing with them? Where are we employing them? And uh, David Graber says, I would encourage the reader to reflect on this passage because it might be considered a smoking gun. What is the president saying here? He acknowledges that millions of jobs in medical insurance companies like Kaiser or Blue Cross are unnecessary. He even acknowledges that a socialized health system would be more efficient than the current market-based system, since it would reduce unnecessary paperwork and reduplication of effort by dozens of competing private firms. But Obama's also saying it would be undesirable for that very reason. One motive, he insists, for maintaining the existing market-based system is precisely its inefficiency since it is better to maintain those millions of basically useless office jobs than to cast about trying to find something else for the paper pushers to do. So here is the most powerful man in the world at the time, publicly reflecting on his signature legislative achievement, and he is insisting that a major factor in the form that legislature took is the preservation of bullshit jobs. That a political culture where job creation is everything might produce such results should not be shocking, though for some reason it is in fact treated as shocking, but it does not in itself explain the economic and social dynamics by which those jobs first come into being. And then he, he goes yeah, on. So, so you uh, see this kind of That's like in. Obama's saying like, yeah. like, okay, and this is exactly what I have talked to city officials yeah. in confidence about the construction industry. Yeah. And they say, look... Uh, if we actually made the roads to last, if we actually made things to last, then we would have lots and lots of construction workers and lots of, of people out of, un- work. out of work. Yeah. And then they would be the taxpayers' problems. Uh, we would have to pay them like all sorts of benefits and we would have high unemployment. And they say, so it's that's politically untenable 
because people don't like to think that there's a lot of people who are getting something for nothing. And so we pay these, we pay these construction companies to do work that we know is shit. Like, because we know that there's other, like this, somebody from Projimarial here in Montreal said to me, like, flat out, look, we know that there's places that have just as harsh of a climate as us. Like, just drive into Ontario. The yeah, roads are drive, automatically They can drive on the roads. <laughs> Norway, Sweden, <laughs> Finland, go, they have You go to the Adirondacks, who actually have worse weather than us, you know, colder, more snow. Yeah. You know, as soon as you cross the border, their roads are fine. But what is keeping, what is keeping um, the construction industry... And this is what a lot of people don't understand about, like the you know, the Charbonneau Commission and the corruption and stuff like that. Yes, absolutely, the mob being involved and all that—that that was the problem. But one of the things that's not mentioned, I in the entire coverage of the Charbonneau Commission on all the corruption in Quebec construction industry, I don't remember once in any of the articles in French and English, any of the shows like on TV or on the radio, I don't remember once people pointing out the elephant in the room, which is that this objective of having close to full employment and keeping unemployment down is part of the reason why so many people looked the other way who were not getting a taste, who weren't actually getting any kickbacks. Because they look at the system and they say, well, at least this system keeps a lot of people working. You know what? I don't know how it is in other places in North America, but I I know that the construction industry in Quebec is the heartbeat of, you know, um, the heartbeat of the economy. And whenever the uh, construction, whenever they want to stimulate the economy, you know, the government here, they always, public works, you know, they fix streets, I don't know, build bridges, you know, do something. Uh, so that the construction companies can can make money. I think that's how they end up funneling money back into the system, which um, which kind of ties in with another one of Graeber's um, uh, premises in the book. He talks about you know rent extraction. Oh yeah, and rent seeking from the political class, which is very. It's a. It's you know what. <sighs> I have a tendency to go towards very conspiratorial, cynical you know, <laughs> ideas, and I also have a very strong tendency to fight them and sometimes to simply you know, discredit it just because it sounds conspiratorial. You know, cons- conspiratorial. Yeah. Yes. Or, um, yeah, I just I kind of discredit it. I'm like, okay, no, the system is not, you know, and I've I've had this discussion with a lot of people often. I'm like, no, you know, this is not why they're doing this. There's always another reason, right? But the whole um, political class kind of holding on to power and setting up a system to make sure that they can, you know, the whole lobby groups um, and that interaction between politicians and lobby groups and regulation and making sure that you know stuff gets done for the upper crust is kind of when you start adding up all these little things and like you say Obama with the smoking gun you know you're kind of like oh is this really what's happening like is that really fucking sucks <laughs> you know i really <laughs> yeah <laughs> No, I mean, but that's the idea that you would actually keep positions in place just because that's going to keep. If you got rid of this objective 
of having to have full employment. Because a lot of it, this is political. He talks about a lot of this being political. He 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 bring he ties a lot of this down to politics. I think. Mm -hmm. Okay, in the book, I think he's. Um, they're building these structures to keep the status quo, right? And yeah, sure, you have these you know bullshit jobs that you know you just just keep having people working that way. Nobody's actually going to spend any time looking at us, right? Because they're just going to keep looking at the new PS4 they're going to buy or where they're going to go on vacation. You know, even you know. <laughs> Even now, during the, the COVID crisis, uh, you have no idea how many people I talk to. The only thing, you know, we're all be like, oh, my God, you know, this is terrible. People aren't going to eat. You know, we're not going outside. But the only, the, I think the most common thing a lot of people ended up talking to me about uh, almost a month or two in was where they want to go on vacation next. <laughs> like, really? <laughs> like, like the the world is literally shut down. Businesses are closing, but we're still like, oh yeah, great, man. I want to go on vacation. You know, like I'm, yeah. I'm tired of being in my house with a mask on. Like yeah. this is horrible. <laughs> you know, what is going on? So, so yeah, it's the you know the wool, I guess, and this is where the wool over your eyes. They're like, keep everybody, you know. And here, we don't ask too many questions either. We're we're pretty lucky in Canada. We're getting a lot of money, right? Yeah. Uh, we have that uh, they're just like paying us i guess i guess you know if uh, if graber were sitting in my chair he would say look the government's just fucking paying you right now to literally do bullshit nothing right so that you don't um turn around and revolt <laughs> or or go and in, infect other people and do stuff like that you know it's i mean it, it a lot of it you know like the examples the examples that he gives of different people and bullshit jobs where uh, you know, that, that opening example where he says that German guy who uh, works for a subcontractor of a subcontractor of a subcontractor yes. of a, the, to the German military. And if, if somebody like an officer wants to, or has to move their office, like just down the hall in yeah. the same building on the same floor, down like two doors, rather than them just like, picking up their computer and their stuff and moving into the next office, um, they have to fill out a, like a form and it goes to a subcontractor and they have to fill out a form. And then he has to drive like 200 kilometers to that base and has to go in and fill out a bunch of forms and put the guy's computer inside a box and all of yeah. his stuff in a box, seal it all up, fill out another form, and then he doesn't walk it down. Somebody else from another company comes, yeah. picks it up. The American military like, complex. Well, this is in Germany. Yeah, and but he, the American, and he tells this but Germany, whole story. Ger the Germans don't have a military. Yeah, they have, the, they have they, a, so their the, military. So the Americans, they're American bases. I, I, I actually didn't look into this, but I know that most... I'll give you an example. Okay, I have a friend who went to Iraq uh, last year, okay? And um, there are American bases that are there. They're basically, a, a, every time anyone is deployed pretty much anywhere from Canada, let's say, they're not going to Germany or to um, Iraq or wherever on a, on a German base. They're going on an American base, right? And the entire American base, so... So he was explaining things to me. It kind of blew my mind. I, I, I wish I had known this before, not that it would have probably changed anything, but 
he was telling me that they're basically paying rent to the U.S. government for everything, right? They want to buy bullets. They buy them from the American government. You know, American government buys their stuff. You know, they, they eat. So as soon as they, they go down to the mess hall, you know, they have their, whether it's their stub or whatever, or their clicker, you know, they say, okay, yeah, one lunch for you. And then that gets ticked off. And I don't know, Halliburton gets money for it or whoever, whoever the military subcontractor is um, providing bullets, providing cars, you know, vehicles, uh, food, clothes, like they don't even have, you know, everything, everything. So, so the Americans have, have made this, the American military complex is like, again, it's the government, right, setting up these bases. And then all these bases, it's the United Nations that are in there. So you get people from, from Canada, from England, wherever, you know, France, soldiers, they go there and you go there and you're basically paying uh, the Americans and they're paying their subcontractors. And that's how they're keeping their machine alive, right? That's how they're keeping private business in the States. And I think this, it's funny that you're talking about, but this is like the fundamental nature of what he's talking about in the, in the book, in this particular case, with the rent extraction or rent seeking or just, you know, politicians that are involved in the machine, the private machine that is literally sucking money out of um, the private sector, right? Through the government. And the government saying, yeah, this is great. You know, we want you to do this. We want to pay a lot of money for these for these bullets and we want to pay a lot of money for all this stuff and we want it all to go to all these private organizations. Yeah. Well, I mean, he, he says that there are lots of, and I've been hearing this for years, that there's lots of libertarians that will say that, uh, well, the problem is just like, gov- it's always government, right? It's always government. Uh, he actually like, it's right after that Obama bit. He says, um, uh, before mapping out what actually happened, it will, first be necessary to dispose of certain very common, if ill-conceived, explanations for the rise of apparently pointless employment frequently proposed by market enthusiasts. Since libertarians, anarcho-capitalists, enthusiasts for Ayn Rand or Frederick Hayek and the like are extremely common in pop economic forms, and since such market enthusiasts are committed to the assumption that a market economy could not, by definition, create jobs that serve no purpose, one tends to hear these arguments quite a lot, so we might as well address them. Basically, such arguments fall into two broad types. Proponents of each are happy to admit that at least some of those who believe they hold pointless jobs in the public sector are correct. However, the first group argues that those who harbor similar suspicions in the private sector are not correct. Since competing firms would never pay workers to do nothing, their jobs must be useful in some way that they simply do not understand. Uh, The second group admits useless paper-pushing jobs do exist in the private sector, and even that they have proliferated. However, this group insists that private sector bullshit jobs must necessarily be a product of government interference. Um, A perfect example of the first kind of argument, okay, well, he goes into a critique of his, uh, his initial... Um, essay where the person says, 
essentially what amounts to like a very religious argument. It reminds me of when I was a teenager going to like a Pentecostal church. Like <laughs> whenever there was a question that the per- person couldn't answer, like the youth pastor or something like that, they would say, well, the Lord works in mysterious ways. And it was like just this like like non-answer, right? And so very often uh, the when you talk to like a really hardcore like market fundamentalist, they it's their thinking is so religious and they don't realize it yeah. it's airtight and circular you can't there's no example you can say that they'll just say well clearly the market produced this person so therefore and they're making this money so therefore they're worth it because the market is perfect and so they are they're worth their $500,000 a year and the fact that you can't see why they're worth it just proves that you're stupid. Yeah. If you were smarter, you would see why they're worth every penny and you would see why the cleaning lady is worth everything she's getting too. Yeah. Like because of market forces. But so then he goes, uh, he says, um, uh, in other words, critics of my initial bullshit jobs essay, um, when we speak of bullshit jobs, we're really just talking about the post industrial equivalent of factory line workers, those with the unenviable fate of having to carry out the repetitive, mind-numbingly boring, but still very necessary tasks required to manage increasingly complicated processes of production. As robots replace factory workers, uh, these are increasingly the only jobs left. And he goes on. uh, He says, I don't think I really need to dwell too much on this argument since the reader is likely to have encountered variations of it a thousand times before. Anyone who truly believes in the magic of the marketplace will always insist that any problem, any injustice, any absurdity that might seem to be produced by the market is really caused by government interference with same. This must be true because the market is freedom and freedom is always good. Putting it in this way might sound like a caricature, but I have met libertarians willing to say exactly that in almost exactly those words. Of course, the problem with any such argument is that it is circular. It can't be disproved. Since all actually existing market systems are to some degree state-regulated, it's easy enough to insist that any results one likes, say, high levels of overall wealth, are the result of the workings of the market, and that any features one doesn't like, say, high levels of overall poverty, are really due to government interference in the workings of the market, and then insist that the burden of proof is on anyone who would argue otherwise. No real evidence in favor of the position is required because it is basically a profession of faith. Right. Yeah. So good. Yeah. You know, it kind of, um, it makes me think, and I maybe not exactly in what you're saying there, but it makes me think about productivity because he does talk about productivity, you know, in a lot of these bullshit jobs kind of, you know, you're not doing anything productive. And um, the thing about productivity and efficiency is that, and from a, a, this is where, you know, on a libertarian perspective, I guess everyone, you know, free, more companies, you know, more people being creative uh, makes a lot of sense. Um, but unlike libertarians, I believe that there is and should be always, I think the government should play a role in certain things where the market um, just falls short, you know, especially when it comes to the common good or just health or whatever. Like, I won't go into details, but, you know, 
Um, well, I mean, the obvious example is during the pandemic, when these countries realized that they had outsourced all their production of masks and various like PPE and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. And to places like China, China and then yeah. suddenly, well, if the borders are shut down, and if China is like crippled by the COVID nineteen epidemic yeah. and if they're keeping everything they're producing well now you're in the situation of the guy who needs an airplane and a pilot at two o'clock in the morning and you can't get one right. like there it doesn't make sense certain things like i don't know uh bullets <laughs> there's certain things that yeah, you're yeah. a country should be producing its own and there's also certain regulations so you're producing yeah. those stuff but there's regulations like health you know you don't, you don't want to be dumping uh, you know chemicals in in the rivers and stuff you know and, and there has to be regulation for that kind of stuff because the market you know the market won't uh correct for stuff like this and i say stuff like this there's like a lot of like things that are just bad for public health and for people in general but just to come back to production this is like a very interesting uh point because he talks about uh, people who uh, get paid a certain amount of money and they don't do a lot of, you know, what are they producing and what, what is their production? And so it's actually very interesting what somebody per hour, or whether it's a salary or a wage, right, what they earn and what they're worth, right? And, and the thing is with, with um, uh, capitalists, I guess, or organizations, I guess that the trick that they have figured out Okay, that a lot of people haven't and people that have just become business owners is that you can um, efficiencies end up going to your bottom line, right? And so employees will put in new processes. Employees will be uh, find new creative ways to do things. And then those creative new – so let's say an employee, I don't know, is earning $20 an hour, Right. And uh, that $20 an hour <clears throat> is um, uh, they're doing this job for whatever, you know, two years, and they figure out a way it takes them eight hours to accomplish task A. And they come up with some, you know, fancy Excel thing, and, you know, they can do it in the whole job in like four hours, right? So now they're twice as productive, right? They will then do another task, right, for the other four hours because the company basically owns them. Right, like Graeber says, owns them for like for eight hours, right? So, but they're still only being paid twenty dollars an hour, and now to do the exact same amount of work, instead of you know uh, being paid one hundred and sixty dollars, they're being paid eighty dollars, right? Four hours of work, and so the company has a an eighty dollars savings there. They've just made an efficiency, right? Which they don't give back to the employee. They don't say, oh, you know, you used to do this task for one hundred and sixty dollars. Now you do it for eighty. We'll pay you one hundred and sixty now. We're going to double your salary, you know. You can do other tasks that will pay you the same salary as before, you know, but this one you're super efficient. So they'll, they'll make an $80 on you. And then if you work in a big company, you know, you may have uh, 20 people or 100 people in your organization that do that task. And now you've got 100 people that are being more efficient, right? So the company skims, takes all that money and that efficiency then becomes profit, Right. And it never gets brought down to the individual. So the individual, and I think companies have realized this more and more over, you know, the last couple of decades. 
And which is also a reason why there's maybe a lot of bullshit jobs because people just end up being more efficient at doing things, right? Or they, you know, they do their job well. They're just not being paid to do it. They're not being paid the efficiency factor or the increase in production that whatever it is that they've figured out or the creativity that they've had. It goes to the bottom line of the company and then the, the company just continues to grow and then it's capital, right? It just kind of grows, you know, the larger the company, the more you can have people like this, the more people like this who basically because they've signed over their time to you, any efficiency that you've created in a, in a, in a system kind of just gets funneled back into the company and not into the individual, right? And I think we're at a point probably right now, you know, where we talk about the 1%, which used to be the 10%, which maybe before used to be the 30, top 30%. It's getting more and more concentrated because of this phenomena, right? And then because of this phenomena, people are, you know, that now it, the phenomena is probably moving so fast that because we have a bunch of, you know, dumb managers, we were talking about, you know, like the bullshit managers. It, it, again, it's a people thing. They don't know, you know, you create efficiencies in a system. Now you need to find things to do, right? So. Yeah. Well, there's... Um I was just like looking it up because I was trying to remember the name. There's a book that I read at the beginning of the summer um, by this guy named Daniel Markowitz um, called the, the meritocracy trap. And he's somebody who's been teaching at Yale law school for a really long time. And he was on, I heard him on Sam Harris and it was a really, really good conversation. I, I got his book like right away, but he says something very similar to what you were just saying. He's like, uh, what we have right now is we have an increasingly small elite of uh, meritocrats who are hyper-productive. And so they have, uh, and he, his backstory is, is he says, you know, back in the day, like especially in kind of like the, the 60s and stuff like that, 50s, 60s, there was this idea that there was this old elite which was kind of white, male, Protestant. It was like a certain kind of the wasp elite. And they were seen as being like, you know, they're really sexist. They're kind of like madmen kind of thing, right? Like yeah. super sexist, racist, and like anti-Semitic and all that stuff. So we, there was this idea back then. And he goes, you know, it made sense to believe this back in the day because it seemed like it would work. They thought if we can create a meritocracy then that's going to be a fair, just society. That what we have right now is a society based on like patriarchy, white privilege, uh, you know, whatever, sexism, racism, all the bad, right? Uh, if we can like just make everything just like an even playing field and meritocratic, then that's going to make a just society. And he said like, that was actually like a really good idea. Um, it It seemed like a great idea at the time. But he said, actually, what, what has happened is that we've created a new elite that is, in many ways, so much more unjust than the old elite. Like he said, the old elite was actually easier to get into than this one. So now we have an elite that is, uh, that is not defined. It, it's men and women. It's different you know, races, different religions, different sexual orientations, stuff like that. So we've created an elite that isn't defined so much in that way. But uh, right now, 
the people who are members of the meritocracy are so um, they are so heavily educated and trained, and they they do that to their kids, right? Like they basically, you know, I mean, this is a lot of studies have shown that it used to be back in the day that actually a surprising number of people, maybe they didn't ma- marry outside of their race or they didn't have same-sex marriage, but a, a, a fair, like a fairly significant portion of people married outside of their class. I mean, Donald Trump is a perfect example. Donald Trump's father <laughs> was super, super rich. Yeah. Was like born, was like a super, trophies, super. Trophies though, but they're, he was they're like, out of their class, but they're marrying trophies. Uh, no, but th- okay, that's a different thing. That's Donald Trump. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But Donald Trump's dad. Oh, senior, okay. Uh, Donald Trump's dad, Fred Trump. Fred, okay, you said Donald Fred like Trump married um, a housekeeper. Right, like Mary, mm. his his she must mother, have been a good housekeeper. I, she wasn't his <laughs> housekeeper. Oh, okay. She was. Uh, he just met her like in New York at a, a social function, and so like here's this woman who's a fairly recent immigrant from Scotland, uh, had no money, came from no money whatsoever, uh, was working as a housekeeper. She met this guy who was super, super, like extremely rich already. They married, um, and and then they you know they, they had the kids. But like that was not uh, like out of the ordinary to have people from a very very high class marrying people who were middle class or were from even like working class people married. There was a lot more kind of marriage across class boundaries, right? What this guy says, uh, Daniel Markowitz says, is that. Uh, that is, and I mean, he's not new in saying this. There's like lots of material that demonstrates this. Uh, that happens way, way less now. So increasingly what happens is uh, you may have like like an East Indian woman, like a South Asian woman who uh, who is like hooking up with a white guy, right? And you say, oh, look, progress, right? Uh, and you might see like two two lesbians like married. But they're the same socioeconomic. Yeah. They're like the same socioeconomic. They probably both have PhDs. They both have, they're probably both doctors. Like they're both lawyers. Like people increasingly, the the meritocracy increasingly is incredibly inbred. They don't, uh, so it's sort of like a Benetton ad, right? Where you have the illusion of diversity, but in fact, Everybody in the picture is super hot. It's like okay, like yeah, you're. I don't, I'm not seeing diversity here. You're yeah. just showing me different colors of hot people. Like that's yeah, like yeah. that's so. It's the illusion of diversity. And those meritocrats, what they go afterwards and do is they invest crazy amounts of uh, time and resources into their kids. Their kids are doing horseback lessons, Mandarin lessons, piano lessons. They're going to private schools uh, that are giving uh, way, way better education, like way better education to the point where like in, in many places like the United States, the average private school kid, if you test them, they test like three grade levels higher than kids in public school. So they're getting way more parental investment lots more and then they're going to schools that have smaller class sizes they get way more attention and stuff like that so when those kids are finally done with their education and they get out into the job market there is no way that the typical 
public school kid who grew up uh, not even we're, we're not even talking about the poor or yeah. the underclass. We're we're talking about the average. His point is the average middle class kid. Yeah, does not have a chance competing against the the yeah. children of the meritocracy because that kid like has uh, speaks multiple languages perfectly. Yeah, he's been groomed. Has, he's been like, groomed to has, take all these has, uh, like, positions. You know, so much like. Knowledge. Like what did they it's say not when you just, when you go to um, connections Harvard or MIT or you know when you're Yale you know at your freshman year when you have the dean talking to you like <clears throat> how does he address the crowd um, to all my future governors <laughs> you know um, you know judges the Supreme Court uh, judges blah 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 right he basically they know they're being groomed right they know. Um, who's going to be running the country? Who's going to be the governor? Who's going to, you know, run Coca-Cola? Who's going to, you know, be making the laws? Uh, who's going to be the justice? So, but his his point is that uh, for the most part, and you can't get uh, in there. there. It's not for the most part what is like running the one percent now, and the elite. Uh, he said it. Sure, is is sexism still a thing? Absolutely. Is is racism still a problem? Absolutely. Is homophobia still a problem? Absolutely. Sure, those things are still there. But he said the the scary truth is that actually the the meritocratic elite that is increasingly running things right now, uh, they're actually better. Like it's they don't need connections to like outperform your kid. They don't need yeah. like they, they they literally have. It's like if you he, he gives the analogy to how for a long time uh, the uh, the Soviets did Soviet Union did very well at the Olympics. Well, that's because they were cheating, right? The Olympics you were only allowed to go into the Olympics if you were. Uh, you remember this when we were kids? The <laughs> Olympics you were only allowed to go to the Olympics if you were an amateur athlete. If you were like a like if you as soon as you went professional like if you played for the NHL like like Petra Kudowak could not yeah, go yeah, that's to right. the Olympics and and be goalie yeah, for they had the, their the Canadian team yeah yeah and none of the professional baseball players could go and play um, it was it had to be amateur athletes right Russians and cheat. they and, Russians don't cheat yeah right <laughs> well they found then they new just ways figure out, then they just figure out uh, then they just uh, they were banned vaccine. from the Olympics because they yeah they no cheat no so much. but forget the Olympics they're really good with drugs like what about um, the vaccine they just found didn't they just find a vaccine oh yeah I know it's so ridiculous the but so what the what the Soviets would do is they would take uh, really great promising athletes. And they saw this as a matter of like, you know, national pride and, and it was good for proving communism was superior to capitalism and all these other things. So they would take these promising athletes and they would um, make them part of the, the military, you know, on the down low. And but they would give them absolutely no military work whatsoever. They would say, just train, you know. Constantly, twenty four seven, train all the time, all the time, all the time. Do gymnastics, and they would. So they would be training like constantly for years and years and years. Uh, They would have they would have no other things going on, right? And so, surprise, surprise, when they went to the Olympics, they would outperform 
these amateur athletes who also work at McDonald's and they're also in university trying to like, you know, cramming for tests and they're also doing a, they're they're amateur athletes. They're yeah. doing it on the side, yeah, right? Yeah. And they're really good. Yeah, they're devoting their they're life doing to it, it but on they the have side. they have a lot of other responsibilities. They have they a lot care. of other yeah. stuff going on in their life, right? They're not professionals, right? Yeah. They're not getting uh, meanwhile these uh, Russian athletes are getting paid like a lot of money like for this bullshit job military position that they have that's not real they don't actually do it and they actually just get them to train in hockey all day or whatever yeah. it is and so surprise surprise they would outperform and initially which is, i think is totally fine you know to be honest i just sh- i i totally do they eventually like they changed the rules yeah, in I the think Olympics it's totally fine. and they said uh they allowed professionals and as soon as they did um the professional athletes like Michael Jordan showed up to them and they just fucking smoked yeah, yeah, the yeah. Soviets so bad. They like <laughs> kicked the shit out of them because they could only win by cheating. Yeah, yeah. Like as soon as they had to actually play against our best hockey players and our best baseball players, yeah. like you're fucking, you're done. Right. Yeah, like yeah. so, but, um, Markowitz's argument in the meritocracy trap is, is similar to that in the sense that he says that the children of the new meritocracy they don't need like white privilege or anything like they don't need uh, patriarchy or, or anything. They don't need connections to outperform your but kids. But they do have They're them. At, they do. They also have they them. They do. But he says that this idea that that somehow the solution is just to get rid of these uh, these kinds of discrimination and that that's going to create a just society. He's like, it absolutely will not. No. Because he goes, he look at the. Uh, the kind of competencies you need to have some of these top jobs, it requires like a crazy, I mean, there's a reason why, like for instance, you know, a, a, a huge percentage of the conductors of like operas, like in the world are Finnish, right? This tiny little country that's like the population of the Montreal area. Like why is this tiny country is it because Finnish people are genetically better at music than other people? No, it's because Finland has extensive support of music from early ages, and they give like lots of. It's sort of like what Tristan Indy went to face, like where they yeah. they rotate all the instruments, they try out violin, they try out all the different things, they they teach them how to read music, they they have extensive music training, and of the whole population. So surprise, surprise, they end up punching far above their weight in classical music the world over. Right? Yeah. So he's saying that the meritocracy right now, they are so, with their helicopter parenting and their obsessive, like, building skills and the kids have no free time. They have to be constantly building their CV and, like, if, you know, even their, they have to do volunteer work, you know, go read to, like, lepers that you found in the park, you know, like, whatever. Like, yes, I read to lepers and, like, put that on your CV. Like, their whole lives are being kind of crafted towards getting into Harvard or Yale or MIT and something like that and then getting, like, the right jobs. It They actually are far more um, competent, right? Yes. I mean, there's, I mean, we see this in Canada. Are just, they, I don't know, but are they the ones that are... Um, discovering scientific breakthroughs are they are these elite that you're talking about that are so well groomed are they being well groomed to be um, <clears throat> managers like the you know 
the the managerial class eventually, or are they well groomed to be the scientific researcher that is going to find a cure uh, to the coronavirus, or that is going to find a cure for cancer, or that's going to, you know, discover, you know, the neural work, you know, for Neuralink and discover how to, you know, uh, create general artificial artificial general intelligence like are they the ones that are actually going to make that creative leap that moves society forward in a in a productive way or are they just the ones that are are they basically being groomed to manage those people i would guess probably b i i would guess probably just because it seems to me that most of the time the people who make the really great breakthroughs in almost any field um, for one reason or another are people who come from outside of it. Um, usually, you know, I've heard a lot of theories as to why this is the case. I'm not actually sure what it is. I mean, I think maybe to some extent it's because people who come from the outside, they just see things with fresh eyes, right? And what that means in practice is that most of the people who see things with fresh eyes uh, see things that are not there, right? They mostly are wrong, right? Yeah. But a couple of them are right. Yeah. And the ones that are right, they just, they see something or they see connections or possibilities that previous people, uh, just people who have grown up within that system, within its rules, it just never occurred to them. Yeah. Right? So that's... Uh, but are they also are these people going to be the ones that are going to be on the floor of a lab doing the actual work, figuring out the actual stuff? You know, they're being groomed, like you say, and they're so much better. They're so much smarter. They, you know, so much more advanced. They're so much more deserving of, you know, their their Harvard, you know, uh, degree. They're so much more deserving of being you know, a justice on, uh, on the Supreme Court or whatever, whatever yeah. it is, right? There, there's so much, okay. Um, again, which kind of ties in with Graeber's, uh, the whole managerial class that he talks about, right? They hold the creation of this class. Now, of course, if getting into this class, you know, if there are certain skill sets and requirements to get there, right? which is to do really good in SAT or whatever, you know, whatever these these children that are groomed for, right, um, are those really the people that are going to help us figure out how to um, modify the space-time continuum to, you know, do space travel in an efficient way? <laughs> Well, I mean, I, I know, I'm, I don't I'm know. Going, I know, I'm going off on a, a total tangent here. No, but, but it, the interesting connection, I think, between uh, between Mark Markowitz and Graeber, between um, the meritocracy trap and bullshit jobs, is that part of his point, I think, if I were to put words in his mouth, is that this new meritocracy, they have uh, risen to prominence to a large extent by getting rid of bullshit jobs by like outsourcing things to other companies, by getting rid of middle management, by automating. That's not what that know, does. And they, they that have, just manages costs. Well, they, he says know. they've they've done this, and but they haven't like in any way um, proposed any like like 
UBI or any solutions for subcontracting what's stuff. John, so now this, doesn't this make things more it, efficient. Subcontracting works, so they're just you know um, again because they're subcontracting this to that. You know they're more no, they're not being more efficient. They're actually uh, legally unbinding themselves from a lot of issues that could happen when you actually do work, right? So if you're subcontracting, you know, I know the construction industry, so I'll talk about the construction industry, but you have construction managers, right, which are at the top of the pyramid, and they have all their sub-trades, and uh, they're not their own employees. They hire somebody to, you know, uh, build a foundation or put up the walls. Well, if the wall is crooked, right, or the foundation wasn't done right, or something, whatever, it's not the managers, like the, the company that subcontracts the work out, right? Now it's the responsibility of that other company. So all the costs of either redoing it or if there's any kind of legal ramifications of whatever kind, you know, a lot of it. So they, they're, of course, once a thing is constructed, it becomes, you know, they, they have um, responsibility, but they'll, they'll push it off on their subcontractors, right? So it's just another mechanism for the people that are literally at the top, right, when they subcontract everything, to sort of take away the responsibility of a lot of those tasks. And a lot, you know, when you have a lot of tasks, you have a lot of jobs, you have a lot of different things that you're doing, there's a lot of room for error, you know, there's a lot of, you know, funny. And then sometimes there's, you're like, oh my God. I know I gave you a quote that this would be like $120,000 and it would take this much time, but, you know, there, there are turtle eggs, right, in, the, in this swamp and, you know, whatever. We have to, like, move them and now it's going to cost $200,000. And they're like, well, I'm sorry. You know, uh, you quoted me $100,000. You stick to that price. That's the budget, right? I'm infantilizing it. But... Um, yeah, I don't think being the managerial, uh, being at the top and, subcon and, and, and having subcontractors, that's not creating efficiencies. That's just protecting yourself. But that's just my yeah, I think that's, that's very often the case. Maybe I'm flailing my arms around too much. No, see. Yeah, no, no, I know. Good. Okay. All right. <laughs> so is this part of it going to be uh, cut out? Yeah, or? yeah, he'll take that out. He'll take that out, yeah. So, uh, and also, you know, this fart that I made. <laughs> yeah, he'll take that out. So. Um, no, but I think his point, and I'm trying to find a way, you know, when I was reading over... You don't need to be politically correct here, John. Jobs, uh, I, I was thinking this, with I was trying to square it with what Mark's, Markowitz is saying. And I think what he's saying is that um, by eliminated eliminating all of these bullshit jobs by creating technologies that can so for instance there used to be lots of uh, white collar jobs that essentially involved writing basic documents and your boss would dictate to you and you would write the letter and you would make sure it was like grammatical and the spelling was correct and things like that well as soon as you're your boss had Microsoft Word and could actually just like spell check it and things like that. They did that eliminated tons of white collar jobs, right? There was like simple bookkeepers 
who were people usually had a high school diploma and they would just do simple math. And well, Microsoft Excel has eliminated tons of those positions and so on and so forth. So uh, his, his argument is that you have these super, this elite like meritocrats, the people, Google people, Facebook people, people like, like in the Silicon Valley and stuff like that, they replace tons of bullshit jobs. um, But they, totally absent themselves from any kind of solution to the social problems that that creates for lots of people, right? And so then what happens is it leaves the way open for people like Obama to say, uh, we're going to keep this completely inefficient bullshit uh, healthcare situation in the United States because at least it's keeping like three million people employed yeah. in the as these paper pushers in the insurance industry, and we're and it leads to Donald Trump to some extent getting elected by saying, "I'm going to bring back coal. I'm going to yeah. bring back all the jobs." So, uh, keeping the bullshit jobs, yeah. whether it be the Quebec government coming to Foley and saying, "We're going to give you a bunch of money." to yeah. create more positions yeah. or Donald Trump saying, I'm going to bring back coal, which everybody knows is a bullshit, bad idea or Obama keeping a bullshit system because like, it's not like a left or right issue. It's not a you know conservative or like, like everybody's in on this scam, which is the scam of keeping full employment or close to full employment. And we don't want to kind of admit that we actually, and I think we're going to have to admit it as well, there's automated. A, there's a, we don't actually need a lot of people's labor there's, there's this, no, for a society we do. Of to, we do. to we need, work. We need all kinds of labor. Well, no, for a society to work, no. But we need. We no, don't need if, a lot of people to work. If want things to continue to um, progress, you know, you need to have people that are constantly uh, thinking, that are constantly creating, that are innovating, right? Um, the problem is, uh, I, there's a there's a lot of like issues, but one of the problems that I see is that. You know, a lot of people are just maybe not that creative or maybe not that innovative, right? But they need to work too, unless you give them UBI. <laughs> yeah, well, exactly. You know? Right? If you actually take care of people, unless you give them right, UBI, you wouldn't. So many of these problems would evaporate if we just acknowledged the fact that uh, we should take responsibility for people in our society and help them out. And if we gave them just a, a basic, I mean, we've the pandemic has sort of shown how yeah. easy it is for governments to do that if they have to. Yeah, yeah, printing, printing. There's the best thing. Andrew Yang, I think, said it at some point. Like the best thing, the the thing that the government is the best at is uh, signing checks to citizens. Yeah, that's it. They have but, everybody's. But in the United they States, have everybody's they social speaking, insurance number. Yeah. You know whether it's they here. bail out the banks, they bail yeah, out yeah, the car course. industry. They bail well, it's out. part of the big lie, right? Tax cuts will create jobs. Like the big, you know, the trickle down economic lie, which everyone knows is a bunch of baloney. Oh, it's I have mal- many like libertarian malarkey. friends, <laughs> market fundamentalists, who bunch, totally still believe I, that. You know, it's just a bunch They're of like we need to give money to job creators. You know, like they they have they they made them again, they deserve the money. They they own it. They made it. Job uh, created a problem with a lot, and it, and it, so there's there's a lot of things to sort of uh, weed out here and iron out, but. I think, and I this is a, one of the parts about the Graeber book that I thought a lot about was, you know, the bad managers, right? The bullshit managers, and, and 
And the thing is, like I said at the beginning, you have some that are really good, that are like conductors and they're coaches and they're mentors and they know everything and they can help their staff, right? And then you have those that are just, they just fucking suck, right? And they're just bad managers. They don't know, they know how to tick boxes. Maybe they maybe they have a degree, you know, and they know how to like, you know, create forms. They know how to write procedures and policies. Look, I had a general manager in one company when he came in. Our company was running really well. And he started, uh, he created like a master Bible book of like all our procedures, you know, from, you know, how to enter orders and, and how production, you know, should process things, how to invoice, but also like, you know, how to use the coffee machine and, you know, make sure you, you clean up dishes after in the lunchroom. And, you know, when you come in, hang your coat in the left you know, uh, a commode, not the right, because that one's for the... Like, like ridiculous. I, really, the point that I'm making is that you end up having this managerial class which don't know what the F to do, okay? So you can give them money. You think, you know, like the trickle-down economics. Yes, it works if you're giving that money to smart, creative, innovative people that have vision, that know how to, you know, conduct their uh, company and their employees to be more efficient and to be more innovative. But that's not what the government is looking for. What the government is looking for is to fill out a form. I'm a company. I have this size. I'm in this sector. I have made so many sales in a year. I produce this product. I have so many employees, blah, 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 blah. Give me money, right? Not I have this employee who's really smart and this manager who's really able to take this team and make them do anything. You know what? You want them to build a house? You want them to build you a guitar? You want them to, like, you know, make the most awesome garden? Like, they'll do it because they're just the most fucking awesome employees ever and they're, like, super motivated and they're really, like, that is never a part of the equation. It's never a part of, of the selection process. If that was part of the selection process, which I have no idea how you would quantify that, right? Then the idea of trickle-down economics, I guess, could you know, could possibly work, right? Yeah. But, but if, it, it so rarely does that. It's like remember that. That's not what it does. Remember that book we were talking about a few weeks ago, that Charles C. Mann, The Wizard and the Prophet. Yeah. Where he goes to that amazing farm, where they they pay. It's outside of Chicago, and they pay their. They pay their employees really, really well. They give them amazing benefits. They produce like fantastic, like food, high quality produce, yeah, high it's quality. Like, it's everything. like the girlfriend on paper, you know. And he, and he says, she's like, really hot. Yeah, <laughs> she's. she's and, and he says, like, she's this five business, foot ten, blonde hair. Yeah, right. And know, he says, just this the right business. The guy says, I've never received a penny of tax. Uh, Tax rebates. I've I've received no grants. I will. Only I don't date qualify. Women yeah, <laughs> that that look like this on paper. Mm. I will only date five foot eleven blonde women that have these measurements. Wow, you're getting taller by the minute. That's yeah. amazing. <laughs> <laughs> you know, forget you know what they know, what they've done. Forget all that stuff. Forget because that that is like what I have to interview them now. Now I have to ask them like how smart they are, and then I have to like kind of figure out what they'd be good at and. Yeah. So, <laughs> so, so, so yeah. Uh, 
<laughs> well, I mean, that's like and that that happens very often where actually the the people who are making money, who are doing a really good job, they're not going to get money from either, you know, the public sector, from government or from private sector, because to get money from either of those, you have to deform yourself in some way. Yeah. Like I, I had a guy, the last person that uh, interviewed in studio, uh, Matthew Mather, who's a Montreal novelist, and he sold millions and millions of copies of his books. The guy's like crushing it. He he has 14 books. He's a bestseller on, on Amazon. He's done all these amazing things. He hasn't received one penny of grants from any like Quebec government or Canadian well, government writer because box sticker. He's he, not doesn't, a, he doesn't like he doesn't yeah, fit. In he's any not of the applying boxes. for grants like yeah. to like or for going to writing seminars in the summer. The guy he just actually uh, writes really good stuff. He writes for readers, not for fellow writers or for um, you know for various kind of granting agencies and things like that. And so and he's doing really really well. And I've you know I've met writers who. Uh, 75, you know, over 75% to sometimes in 100% of their income, it comes not from actual sales of books, not from readers, but from government grant. Nobody reads their stuff, right? And yet they just keep, they their books come out with these, from these small presses, academic presses, or uh, small presses that run completely on grant money. They only have a print run of tops 500 copies of books. Most of those just sit in boxes in a warehouse somewhere. So it's all just, it's like in, in Bullshit Jobs when he talks about the woman who was working for uh, a magazine that was on like, was like a, one of those magazines they give you on an airplane. Like the Emirates, she, she worked for like a while for that magazine that's it's like a, a magazine that you get when you go on this airline and she figured out at a certain point that the entire operation was a scam that they produced no magazine that um because she flew quite a bit and she noticed that the magazine that she was working on was never in any of the planes that she was on and she asked lots of people have you ever seen a physical copy of this magazine that we like work on like all the time and nobody had seen this magazine. And so then she went and asked somebody else at her job. She said, is this actually a real, like, does this magazine actually ever come out? And they're like, no. Yeah. They use it to swat uh, mosquitoes. Yeah, no, no it, was, it was, it was even, it was crazier than that. <laughs> Roll them up it was basically mosquitoes. somebody, useful, somebody John. within the airline um, was embezzling money. And so they were embezzling um, so I looked into this after like yeah. reading that in his book, and it, it's actually it's like a totally real thing. So uh, somebody within the within the airline was um, embezzling, I think like like five hundred thousand dollars a year to uh, to produce this in-flight magazine, yeah. right? And um, was was sort of and so they had to create an office to look like. They actually were. Producing. And they were printing. I don't. You know what? As it was never reason, being printed. It was this, never uh, being printed, okay. and uh, and it was just like you know, it's like it's completely, it's completely crazy. It's like a where is it? Um, Not even. They didn't even print a few of them to give to like 
management to make them feel like they had it a was magazine? uh no no she says um <laughs> nothing says, uh, blah, blah, blah. Came only basically to i encountered an even more extreme example in my own research one woman wrote to me that she had worked for almost a year selling advertising for an in-flight magazine that she gradually realized did not exist. Oh, selling advertising for yeah. it. Okay, okay. She became I, suspicious when she articles. realized she had never once seen a copy of the magazine in the office or on an airplane, okay. yes, yes, despite the fact that she was a fairly frequent flyer. Eventually, all her coworkers quietly confirmed that the entire operation was a fraud. Well, she was just not that good of a salesperson because if she <laughs> sold no advertising, <laughs> you know, she's ending, but the whole you thing, know. you know, the, the whole thing to be just like made up, like that's just completely wild, you know. But I mean, I, I guess the we have to figure out. I mean, the the deeper problem is we have to figure out with automation and with people living longer lives. Um, more and more people are eventually going to have leisure time, right? And we have to figure out, we, we have to, first of all, make the world safe for leisure time. Well, the first thing, time, like, right? like Graeber says, so before he gets to the point which I see you're going for, he had like a couple of major themes. And I think one of the things he said is, all right, so these pointless jobs exist. And they do. I've never had it. I've seen pointless jobs. I've done pointless stuff. You know, I've done bullshit stuff. I've seen a lot of bullshit stuff. I don't have a bullshit job. And I find it very disturbing that so many people have these kind of bullshit, do absolutely nothing jobs. But one of the things he says is like, why isn't anybody saying about anything about this? Like, right? One of the questions that he asks is, okay, so why do people when they get a bullshit job, not say something, quit, not tell their boss, not, you know, like that is part. So part of the problem, you know, um, is having those in the, in the, with those jobs to say something, you know, but a lot of people, if they, if they've got, you know, I mean, especially in the States, like if you've got, you know, a hundred thousand, two hundred thousand dollars worth of student loan debt. Yeah, but it's if you've got like a, you know rising rent prices, yeah, of course, and cost everybody of wants living, to pay their. I get it. Everyone you wants have to, to pay like their rent. Make your For sure. you, and so you're in a situation where you're in this shitty bullshit job. You know that it sucks. You know that it's useless. But that's part of the culture uh, too. And you, to but you speak can't up. say anything. But you know that's part of the culture. I think. Before you can figure out, well, yes, okay, so the whole, UB, then, of course, you say, you know, we'll just pay people to stay home and, you know, get this money from big, rich tech companies and pharma and blah, blah, blah. Okay, fine. Uh, so we have a solution. But forget the solution. Before the solution, let's get to a point where, as a society, we're like, hey, this is fucking bullshit. Like, why am I doing it? And to challenge, right? Even when there's, like, bullshit things to do, all the companies I've worked at, even the one that I'm currently at, there are not many, but there are still like these bullshit box ticking things to do, right? I'm not going to say, hey, this is total bullshit. I'm not doing this, you know, like, um, so like, I'm not saying that I'm the solution, right? I'm just saying that um, as a culture, culturally, we all accept this. 
right? We accept these things and no one really says anything about it because we all have bills to pay. Everyone wants to, you know, get their monthly subscription to, you know, Netflix or whatever video game they have or go, you know, on some holiday south and pay the bills and, you know, bring their kids to hockey and, you know, whatever. Um, so most people just shut up and do the job. Yeah, what, what did they call Tom Wolf called that the the yuppie Nuremberg defense? Like he used to be like you know at Nuremberg the Nazis were like I was just following orders. Following and orders. And the the yuppie Nuremberg defense is like I'm just doing this because I have to pay up my bills. But that's it's, it's it's supposed to somehow make you like exempt from so, all so of your the morally we're there. shitty things you've done. So so we're there. We're we're actually all a little bit to blame, you know, in that we're allowing this. To, to happen to us, right? We're allowing bullshit things to, to be done so that we can get our paycheck at the end of the month, right? And just continue living our little lives, you know? <laughs> yeah. Well, I think, I mean, just to sort of in, in conclusion, I think um, I think the the answer, or at least part of the answer... Evolution. Is uh, is we have to revolution? Yeah, re- no, I don't, I don't think <laughs> it's revolution. No, no, I'm joking. I mean, that's that's David Graeber would say that. But I know, I know. I think uh, we we just have to get good at doing things that are intrinsically um, worthwhile to us. So if if you know, for you it's gardening, right? Yeah. Like you love. For me, it's like you know, you walk around the mountain looking for salamanders and butterflies and. And, you know, looking at snakes and stuff like that, whatever, like whatever it is, whether it's, you know, crocheting for some people or whatever it is that you're into. I think people need to get my my mother and her husband um, just love to, you know, they're both musicians and they'll just sit around and like, you know, play guitar, play musical instrument and sing and like they'll make music. And it's not because they have to or somebody's paying them to or they're trying to get a grant or they're trying to make a hit album. It's because they find it intrinsically really, really fun to make music. That's they, they would do that, you know, on a desert island by themselves if they had their musical instruments. They would make music or they would, you know, invent some if they didn't have them there. So I think we increasingly need to do things that like we have to sort of remember the whole idea of hobbies and like pa- things that you do just cuz you find them intrinsically fun not because it's going to build your cv or it's going to make you money or it's going to lead to some career or something like that we need to remember how to do that again yeah um i think and then we need to also i think just uh, spend much more time um doing things that are not for money that are for other people. Because a lot of, you know, this is one of the, the side points that David Graeber makes. Yeah, I, caring I really jobs. Rec- the caring I, versus productive jobs. Yeah, yeah, you know, it's a it's a point that he makes again and again. Um, and I, But in, in none of the reviews the of his relationship, book, but that's, again, that's a societal thing. Yeah, right? he says, you know, there's a lot of jobs that are not bullshit jobs that are real jobs, like cleaning people's houses, or uh, caring for cooking the for people, caring for children and the elder. There's a lot of jobs that are that only exist because so many people are at work doing bullshit jobs. Like they're they're somebody's at an office 
you know, making an in-flight magazine that doesn't exist. Yeah. And they're working there like 50 hours a week. And meanwhile, somebody has to like take care of her kids. So now there's daycare workers. Right. And her mom is like, you know, sick and elderly and needs help. So now she has to hire like a nanny to take care of her kids, somebody else to take care of her mom while she's working at a job that is complete fucking bullshit. Does like it does not help anybody. Is so, it, it so a lot of David Graeber's point is that one of the advantages of getting rid of bullshit jobs and giving people UBI is that a lot of people could just make their own meals, clean their own house take care of their own kids. Like they wouldn't have to actually like so many of these jobs are, you know, like he says, dog walkers in Manhattan. It's created because the other thing people have dogs, but they're working so much. They don't have time to walk their dogs. Is that, um, so I'm going to back up here. Uh, when I first heard about UBI, I think you actually talked to me about this. Yeah. And <clears throat> my initial reaction was quite, um, negative in that you know just pay people to stay home like what the fuck you know like what i want them to like clean the street right i want them to like mow the lawn everywhere like in front of you know the courthouse and i just i want them to do stuff yeah we, shave my back hair do yeah. something <laughs> <laughs> just need to do shit just do something right yeah again create a busy job yeah, yeah. Right? busy like the proliferation well of, that, like, that's a busy jobs. job yeah, yeah, yeah no but um so and I, I followed Andrew Yang's campaign last year, whom I, I really like, by the way. I think he's, you know, he's a really cool guy, he's great amazing. ideas. He's, he's a amazing. beautiful, wonderful man. Um, yeah. But so he, uh, he won me over, okay? He won me over. I'm not going to go into all the details, but he won me over. I kind of, um, I think UBI is a good idea, okay? I'm not going to get into the details as to why. I just do. Problem is this. And Graeber puts a finger on it, too. He says, you know, um, capitalists are afraid to have... They know that you got, like, 15 hours of work a week to do. They're, you know, the rest of the time, if they don't keep you busy, you may end up, you know, uh, being creative and starting your own company or doing something, right? What happens with UBI, if it uh, gives a lot of people more part-time work, or, you know, people end up doing stuff that they like and they, you know, a lot of these big companies that have people on staff that basically own them. Like my company, they own me. I can't come up with, and I basically signed papers saying that if I come up with anything innovative and genius that has to do with the industry that I'm working in or have an idea, basically I've come up with this idea on their time and it's theirs. And if I ever decide to go do something, you know, they they can, you know, hunt me down and can take it from me, right? Because they own, they basically own my brain, they own my my creativity, they own my innovation, they own all that. <clears throat> now, if you start giving people money, the capitalists don't own that anymore. Because now they can just sit around it. And the creative people, the innovative people, the ones that do have ideas, they may end up doing a lot of this. So the idea from a social perspective and I think from a societal perspective is like it makes so much sense but I think from the place where we're actually at right now with the with the 1% and with the indoctrinated managerial Borg class <laughs> right um, 
not uh, it's not going to go over well because when they just think about it for a whole three seconds, like I did, they'll be like, yeah, well, you know, all those like really creative, really innovative, really smart people that, you know, we typically own that we end up profiting from their innovations, from their efficiencies when they're working doing mostly bullshit stuff all day, but occasionally they come up with, like, really fantastic ideas, um, we're going to lose these people, right? Well, I think for the same reason that we got, we, got a, we got a kind of de facto UBI because of the pandemic, because they wanted people to just stay the fuck home, um, I think for similar reasons, we're going to end up with UBI um, because – a lot of people are going to make the cut. You know, we were talking about this like earlier on today, like before we were recording, how they're going to put it together that um, it's probably better to just give people UBI because the alternative could be revolution. The alternative could be people rising up and and embracing some sort of uh, redistributive political ideology or some sort of, or, or, you know, getting involved in extremist politics and of various kinds, you know, far right, far left, you know, whatever, yeah. uh, religious, you know, maybe like some crazy fundamentalist religious movements that I think ultimately for very pragmatic reasons, for the same reason that you had the Marshall Plan after World War II, where the United States decided, you know what, we need to rebuild Germany and France and the UK and we need to rebuild Europe and we need to create stable societies because if we just like leave this, we're going to have another world war in 20 years because that's what we did after World War One, and that, that shit did not work out. So we need to rebuild these societies and we need to create stable, wealthy societies because they're going to be more on the global stage, more politically stable. They're not going to be starting. They're not going to be as susceptible to Hitler's and Stalin's and Mussolini's and stuff like that. So I think for pragmatic reasons, not idealistic reasons, for pragmatic reasons, UBI will eventually uh, happen, you know, soon. It already exists. Like you well, were talking about yeah. pretty much with big companies and that whole giving corporations tax cuts and giving them all kinds of benefits like like all the bullshit jobs that's that's unfortunately the flip side yeah UBI. that's a trickle down it's a trickle trickle down, down ubi trickle down it's highly UBI. inefficient it's terrible yeah it's, it's highly horrible. inefficient it's horrible. and like, it's not helping yeah. society with the creative juices and you know the innovation and the go-getters and all the people that want to like change the world and do something, but just can't because they need to, you know, check boxes. Um, yeah, it's not helping, but you know, the one percent don't care. <laughs> well, I mean, that's you know, it's funny because you know the. Don't care about that. Uh, I remember, I think it's John Ralston Saul in one of his books, uh, "Reflections of a Siamese Twin," where he talks about how um, somebody once did like an analysis of all the money that was being spent on social programs to go to like native and indigenous communities and stuff like that. And they got like a dollar and it was a conservative, um, it, it was a conservative politician. I can't remember who, what his name was, but he did this study because he wanted to show that this was total bullshit. And this was like, we should stop giving money to like, you know, the indigenous communities, native communities, stuff like that. And so what he showed is that 
like some ridiculous percentage of the money that was spent on, you know, as they call it, Indian issues and stuff like that, was actually going to one big building in downtown Toronto, which had multiple floors of people who were soaking up like grant money and program money. And they were just like, you know, getting like 120 grand a year, 75 grand a year. None of this was actually making it out to reserves or actually going to like... This and is so, like a sand trade and all the or whatever the the, the well it was, programs that help kids in Africa and well there's these, that there's that problem sure but where his the point, money just gets like, siphoned out at the John Ralston Saul's point was was he said you know this actually makes a point that this guy didn't think he was uh, trying to make uh, this to me doesn't mean we should like cut the amount of money that we spend because it's inefficient this to me says. It would be much better if we just cut a check to every person who's people. living on a reserve to That's the actual right. people, to people. Give them the money. Yes. And let them and yes. are some of them going to like waste it on stupid shit? Sure. sure. All of us do. Yeah, Humans waste their money on stupid shit often. But it, that would be like a much better solution. It would be more likely to actually help people. And what's crazy is actually at the time, uh, Saul spoke at this like conference in Quebec City. This had such a big effect on the Quebec City, the Quebec politicians that were there, that when they were organizing the James Bay Agreement decree, they actually uh, decided to go with that model and just give checks to everybody who was a member of a particular nation. Yeah, and it's done really, really well. They they're like, no, no, no. We're not giving money to fucking to NGOs. The leader, you know, we're, the, we're not the, giving money to, to NGOs yeah, that yeah. are claiming to try and help these people. No, yeah. we're going to – everybody – how many people are members of the Korean nation? How many people are members of this? We're going to give each person a, a check. Yeah. Boom. Well – And it's it's had all these amazing effects. Like right now, they have more in Quebec – the indigenous people have, I mean, it kind of sucks everywhere in Canada, but it sucks less in Quebec, yeah. way less, because they have way more, autonom- way more autonomy here. They have way more, like, actual um, rights and control. Like, they own their own airline, right? So rather than, like, in the rest of Canada, in most places, they have to, they get grants to subsidize their flight going from, like, Toronto to, like, you know... Inuvit, like really Inuvit, like way up high north yeah. and stuff like that. They get grants to subsidize their flight or to go from, you know, Calgary up to the Northwest Territories. Here in Quebec, they own their own airlines yeah. that fly to like uh, Ujibugamu, like in northern Quebec or to James. They have their own, they own the airline. They don't need to get grants from the government to do that. No. They can be like, yeah, we're going to subsidize. Like everybody in the community gets like a certain number of, I think, like two flights a year that they can take for free. And then you have to pay for the other ones after that. And they they charge, you know, us, we had to pay like crazy amounts, you know. But they just have control and autonomy. And it was based on this idea that uh, you don't have to do this trickle-down bullshit. It's not even trickle-down. The other, the other phenomenon, and I think he talks a little bit about it too, is that give money to an organization and the organization's goal is basically to keep the ball in the air as long as possible. <laughs> right. Yeah. You know, try and keep, you know, stay, so you create positions and, you know, so it's kind of, um, 
Well, you and I, you know, we've been friends for decades and decades. We could keep the ball in the air for hours. So we should probably right, finish should, here. But yes. thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Right, this John, has been absolutely amazing. Me. We got to do this again. Yes. Totally uh, and thank you for getting me to uh, to read a lot maybe, of amazing books yeah. this summer. Maybe, maybe next time we'll talk about gardening. This is out of my wheelhouse. Yeah. We, <laughs> 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 All right. Thanks a lot. Okay, bye. <laughs>